right. Good morning, everybody. Or good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are, whenever you are out there catching us online. Welcome. Glad that you're here. I am hyped to get to this message today. I'm also excited, but more than that, I'm hyped. And some of it's the Rise Malabar coffee that I've, or a tea that I'm having. Some of it might have been the Red Bull that I downed between services. Could be that. But even more than that, I think it's an excitement in my spirit about getting to share a gospel message of Jesus with you. And the reason, the reason that I'm so hyped about this is because all churches everywhere, pretty much since the very beginning, have taught coming up to Easter about a resurrected Christ. And rightly so. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is key to our faith. The power of, of Christ's victory over death, triumph over darkness, all these aspects of what it means, the resurrection of Christ means. And by the way, and I forgot to mention this last service, if you're somebody who maybe struggles with that idea, because remember, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the central tenets of the Christian faith. And if that's something that you struggle with, but how, how could that really have happened? Did that really happen? Or is it maybe just a metaphor? There's a book that we have. It's, it's on the back shelf there, a little, or not shelf, a little table. Grab one of those. I bought a whole bunch. So if you, either you yourself have questions about that, or you want to share it with somebody maybe who you think might have questions, grab one of those on the way out. There's no charge. I want you to have them. The sad thing to me would be if they're all left over come Easter. So please take one with you. But it just talks about how we know, and not only know by faith, how we can prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. And that's what we base a lot of our faith on. So it's good to know that. But all churches kind of focus on that aspect leading up to Easter, and we're no different. But I wanted to focus on a slightly different aspect of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter did for us. And I want to do that talking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the lens of a light being brought into the world. A light promised from the very beginning. This is not a, this is not a new age thing or new, let's look at Jesus as the light. It's been that plan since the very beginning. It's one of the very central parts of Scripture that focuses on Jesus being the light in a world that so desperately needs light. Would you say our world is desperately in need of light right now? I believe that, and it's been that way again from the beginning. If you're new here, I share a lot of Scripture, a lot of Scripture. I believe that that Scripture should come first in, in a message, and then it's my job to help put those together and make that make sense. So I'll be reading a lot of scripture. If you want to follow along, I'll always give you the scripture reference. Uh, if you have the YouVersion app, the YouVersion app has all the scripture references on there. You can follow along. For those that I don't read or put up on the screen, or for those I don't put up on the screen, I'll read it to you. So you'll, you'll have it. If you have your Bible, though, you can always follow along. I like to use what's called the NASB translation, New American Standard. If you have a different translation, it might read a little different, but it's, the idea is the same. But I want to go back. So this is in 2 Corinthians. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter, the second letter to the Corinthians, and he writes them this. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, which, by the way, is our title for the series, 
is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that light of Christ, literally, he was the representation of the glory of God. And it illuminates those things in the world for us. Things that we couldn't see otherwise now suddenly come to life. And this is not, again, a new thing. It's been that way from the very beginning. That where it says, God said, light shall shine out of darkness, that's from Genesis 1-3. That's the third verse of the first book of Scripture. God said that. God gave light dominion over the darkness and gave that light the favored status. And it's been that way ever since. Now, the world is desperate for, dark, for light to drive out the darkness. We are living in a world right now where darkness seems to have dominion. In fact, we know that Satan was given dominion over the earth, and so that's not entirely untrue. But we know that Jesus came to bring light to a world in darkness. But since the beginning, there have been struggles with that. There's been issues surrounding that light being introduced into a world in darkness. So last week, we're in message number three of our series. If you missed the first or second, go back and check them out. Whatever platform you're watching on online out there, Facebook, YouTube, or our web player, you can check out the archives there. Or if you're here in-house, you can go when you get time. Check out the first couple messages because it kind of lays the foundation for where we are now. Um, but without reteaching it, in the first week, we talked about how the world is, is just in need of light. It's a world in darkness in need of light, and it's been that way for thousands of years, and it's going to continue to be that way until Jesus returns. The world is desperate for light. Last week, then, we talked about the fact that the light in the form of a Messiah, a coming Messiah, had been also promised, again, from the very beginning all the way back in Genesis, had been promised over and over again through Scripture, through, through what we call the Old Testament, but Scriptures, the Hebrews have been taught since the very beginning of their culture that a Messiah is coming to break the chains, to set you free. This has been a promise, but when he came, when the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, came, they missed him. How could that happen? How could a world so desperate for the light and for a Messiah who had been promised, who had been given these breadcrumbs or these clues all throughout Old Testament Scripture that he was coming and this is where he'd be born and this is what it would look like and all these clues that we look at and go, duh, how could you not see that that was fulfilled in Jesus? And yet they missed him. So that was last week we talked about that. Now this week, we're going to take a look at some of the reasons why the light of Christ, or the knowledge of Jesus Christ, is flatly rejected by so many people. Flatly rejected. And we're going to talk about that, how we can then, if we're given the great commission by Jesus, and Scripture in Matthew promises, you know, Jesus himself said, I want to send you out. Our job is to go out into the world and make disciples. Make disciples doesn't just mean make people who come to church, gather bodies in church, and share the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he is with the whole world. That's our job. So how do we do that job? How do we overcome the fact that the gospel is rejected by so many people? And in fact, causes kind of a hateful reaction in a lot of people. How do we overcome that and still be able to 
to fulfill the great commission of Jesus and do that. We get a little bit of a clue. John chapter 1, verse 5, and this one I'll just read for you. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Okay, so we're promised there the light, the light being Jesus Christ, will shine in the darkness. And darkness, although it seems like it sometimes, darkness cannot extinguish it. Depending on your translation, it'll just say can never extinguish it or overcome it or can't grasp it or can't comprehend it. It's all the same idea that the light cannot lose to the darkness. The darkness will not overcome. So that's hugely encouraging, but it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It doesn't just happen and we get to sit back and watch it happen and enjoy it. We, and when I say we, I mean believers in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, we have a role to play in that. We have a responsibility in that, and that's what we're going to go through here today. So again, week three, this one, the title, if there was a subtitle of this message, is The Light Is and Has Been and Always Will Be Offensive to Many. The very gospel of Jesus Christ can be offensive to so many people. We're going to talk about why and how we overcome that. Let's go back to this time when Paul, the Apostle Paul, Saul, his name was at the time, was walking on the road to Damascus, and he was met by Jesus Christ. And Jesus commissioned him and sent him out, said, here's why, here's why I'm here. I'm here to appoint you as a service servant and witness. Okay, Jesus said that. I'm here to appoint you as a servant and witness. In Acts 26, 18, he continues. Here's the reason he did that. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now that's what Jesus did when he commissioned Saul, who became Paul and went out and became the greatest evangelist there ever was. You notice in that gospel message, a servant and witness send you out. And here's the reason, to open their eyes so they'll turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they can receive forgiveness and an inheritance. Those are all good things. You don't hear in there so that uh, they can escape the wrath of an angry God. That's certainly part of it, and I don't want to diminish that, but the reason he was sent was for life and light and to bring that into the world. Now, Satan's goal has always been to keep you away from that light, to do anything and everything he can in his power to keep you away from the light. And if he loses that, if for some reason you slip through all the cracks and you come to the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then his goal is to keep you ineffective in sharing that light with somebody else. So, okay, I may have lost you because you know Jesus now, but I'm sure going to do whatever I can to make sure you don't share it with somebody else. I don't want this to spread. That's what Satan does. That's what he's always done. Now remember, if that's what we're talking about here, we need to understand or be firm on the definition of darkness that Jesus is talking about here and the kind of darkness that Satan wants to pull you into is this. Darkness is a state of ignorance, either willful or circumstantial. So you've either decided you're, you're going to stay away from that or maybe circumstantial, you just haven't been taught or you have, th- 
things haven't lined up for you to hear the gospel in a way that can, that can bring life. Either willful or circumstantial, that leads to walking the sinful path that leads to death and bondage to the things that cause it. Now remember, sin, sin is not necessarily Ten Commandments sin. Because most people would go, well, I haven't murdered, and I don't covet my neighbor's wife, and I don't commit adultery, and I don't, you know, those things, like, okay, I haven't committed those sins, but sin really is anything less than what God wants for you. A loving Father God wants the best for you, and he wants these things for you, and anything outside of that is sin. It's literally just missing the mark. So we all have done that, but we want to get to that place where more often than not, we're walking in the light. Jesus said, John 12, verse 46, we have that one, I have come as light into the world so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. Again, just reaffirming that's why he came here and the coming of the Messiah has always been synonymous with the coming of light into darkness. The freedom of captives, the overcoming of of evil with good, those have all been synonymous with the coming of the Messiah. So question, given all that, it ought to be great news, but sometimes it isn't. It ought to be the kind of news that you could share with somebody and they go, I've been waiting for somebody to shine the light on this world, somebody to expose the evil of this world, somebody to to be the Messiah, to, to triumph good over evil. I've been waiting for that. Even a non-believer in Jesus should say, in theory, that's a good idea. Whether they believe in Jesus or not, they should say those things are a good idea. But oftentimes, they don't. The Gospel of John kind of gives us an answer of why that is. John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. Just that. Believers and non-believers alike, many of them, many of us, I'll include me in that, like to have this idea of there are some things I do that I know I probably shouldn't. I'm going to keep them in the dark. I'm going to put them in this drawer. I'm going to shut it. Nobody knows it's there. And when I want to, from time to time, I'll pull it out and I'll play with it and then I'll put it away. I'll keep those things in the dark and they won't hurt anything. We fool ourselves into thinking that's something that we can do. Believers and non-believers in Christ all struggle with that. They all struggle with that. And many people confidently think that that darkness, I use the metaphorical drawer, but the idea of keeping those things out of sight in the dark will conceal their sin. It will hide it from the rest of the world. But they are wrong. They're very wrong. Again, believers, non-believers are like, they're wrong. And it's so true, it's kind of become a cliche. Let me show you a painting I found. Painting is called A Thief in the Night. I don't know how well it translates there, but it's the idea, and we've all seen similar things like that. You have this, I assume he's a bad guy. He's got a knife, and he's skulking around in the dark. And there's a house over there. We don't know what's going on in there, but he looks like he's got some bad intent for what's going on there. It's just a, it's just a metaphor for what we see 
all the time in a million different ways. Nothing good happens in the dark. Every scary movie, everything you've ever seen has some different version of that. But here's the problem. Scripture promises us that even things done and said in secret will come to light. There's no place to hide. That can be a hard pill to swallow if you're one of those people who are trying to hide something. It can be a hard message to receive when you hear things like this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And I'll read it for you. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ooh, that's hard. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's not even enough just to do the right things. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. Who here has a nosy neighbor, somebody that looks over the fence all the time or is always like trying to check out what you're into? Anybody have one of those people? You think that's irritating? How about a Holy Spirit that is all up in your business and knows what you're thinking, not even just what you're doing or what you put on public display? He knows what's in your heart. The Holy Spirit will literally be a part of everything you do. And if you're the kind of person that's trying to keep a secret, that is going to be irritating. Some would say offensive. Those who try to hide their evil are often, and we see this in culture every single day, if you're trying to hide your evil and it's exposed, we often see the one who exposed it being the one who's attacked. (coughs) Exposing someone else's evil opens you up for attack. We see that all the time. It's another one of Satan's tactics to keep us from doing it. I don't want to call that out. We see that in our culture. We see whistleblowers. And whatever you think about whistleblowers, they're exposing something that in most cases is not good. Okay? Whatever you think about their motives or their intentions is not good. But what happens is that culture just attacks them. Like a feeding frenzy of piranhas. That If you call something out of somebody or expose some darkness, you set yourself up for attack. It's a, it's a tactic by Satan to keep you from doing that, keep you from exposing it. This isn't just a believer, non-believer issue. Okay, those with Christ have to deal with this. Those with don't, with those don't have to deal with it. It's nothing like that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us that no one will be exempt from judgment on the day when Christ returns in glory. It's scripture says he'll sit on the throne of judgment and he will judge the nations. Now that phrase, the nations, we've studied that before, literally means everyone. Believers, non-believers, Jews, Christians, pagans, wherever you are, it says you're going to be judged. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 say, for when Gentiles, and in this context, Gentiles is everyone else. Okay, so that includes pagans, Christians, everybody, everybody but Jews at this point. For when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. Let me explain that really quick. That means, so the Hebrews had, they had the law. They had 
the law given to Moses on Sinai. They had that, but even they're finding, even those people who had never heard of this, had never heard the law, never seen the law, somehow still knew the difference between right and wrong. Even these pagan nations that they dealt with still had this idea of right and wrong, and they held themselves accountable to this idea of right or wrong. Verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Christ Jesus. This means everyone is accountable to some sort of law. Okay, Hebrews might be accountable to the law of Moses given on Mount Sinai. We as Christians are accountable to that and a higher level of law given to us by Jesus. But even non-believers are accountable to a law written on their hearts. And you'll be judged according to that when the day comes. So nobody is exempt. Remember, before even the Old Covenant, again, that's what we call the law given to Moses on Sinai was, was this old covenant idea given to Moses. But even before that, men knew the difference between right and wrong, ever since going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What was the tree that they ate from? Remember what it was called? The knowledge of good and evil. So just that knowledge is, has been a problem ever since. The knowledge of what's right the knowledge of what's wrong, and then the attempt to judge that without the equipment really to properly judge those things has been a problem ever since the garden. And if that weren't, as if that weren't vexing enough to hear that no matter where you are, there's no excuse for living an evil, sinful life or evil thoughts and behavior, we're told this. We're told explicitly that when Jesus returns, he will judge everything you have ever said or done. How's that feel? We know this from Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. We have that on the screen. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. This means if you missed our study, we did a study a couple years ago on the revelation of Jesus Christ, on the whole book. It's not on video, but it is an audio podcast. If you want to go back, you can pick those up on our, on our different platforms. Listen to that if that is something that interests you. But this is talking here about everyone, those who know Christ, those who don't. On that day, they will all be judged, believers or not. Now, let me ask you this question. If you're a non-believer, you don't know the Lord, maybe you're seeking the Lord, maybe you never couldn't care less about the Lord, but you're in that place, and you hear somebody tell you, you're going to be judged for everything you've ever said, done, or thought on that day. Does that sound super exciting to you? Is that going to be really, really attractive for you? How would you receive that if you're in that place? Would it be like this guy? So you're telling me that I'll end up suffering eternally if I don't know this Jesus of yours. Please tell me more. Has anybody ever experienced that kind of reaction? No. Because sharing the gospel of Christ in that way is not going to be effective. If you're sharing Christ with a non-believer, judgment, 
eternal damnation. Those are all aspects of it, but that is not what the gospel of Christ is about. The gospel of Christ is about life, and it's about light, and it's about freedom. It's about breaking the chains of captivity. That's what the gospel of Christ is about. That's what we should be sharing. That's what we share. And that's going to be more attractive. It's not one of condemnation, but of freedom and life. But here's why that's a problem. We live in a society where we're constantly being told anything goes. And it seems like it's getting worse all the time. Things have changed so much in the past just year or two. I've seen things progressing throughout my life, but it seems like it's just amplified by like 100 times in the past year. Things are just accelerating down this path of anything goes. And you're ridiculed if you dare to say, I don't think anything goes. You're told things like this. Anything goes if it makes you happy. And maybe they'll add, as long as no one gets hurt, but they don't often even care about that. Or how about this? You do you. You, you just do you. Whatever, whatever's okay with you. Or phrases like this. Surely if there's a God, he would want me to be happy. Now, it's okay thinking thoughts like that, but if that's where you leave it, that's not okay. Or how about this? It's okay if you don't go to church. Just be spiritual. I'm just a spiritual person. Or just try to be a good person and it will all work out. Or here's this one. There's a common book out there, a common, a popular book out there called Love Wins. And the idea behind it is if there really is a loving God, he'll find a way. He'll find a way for me. Well, he has found a way, and the way is Jesus, and we have a choice to make. He's not going to grab you by the collar and drag you there. We have a choice. But so the question is, are all those statements, are those, are those truth? Because that's what you see. That's what we see in media all the time. And, and I fear for those people who stand up very, very boldly and proclaim those things aren't truth because we've seen the pack turn on them. And what was true a week ago or a month ago or a year ago might not be today. So you better keep up on your latest terminology and beliefs and whatever thought train is going out there right now because it could turn on you just as quickly. You rely on the truth that you were taught six months ago, you might as well be a dinosaur. That's why the truth in the word of God is so important. And I think there's gonna be a new hunger for that truth. People that are just desperately searching something that was true thousands of years ago and it's true today and it'll be true tomorrow. This is the only truth that doesn't change with the wind. So it can seem very offensive, very exclusionary, very narrow-minded to focus on Jesus Christ and him resurrected and not be inclusive of every lifestyle or thought or idea on how we should live our lives. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our Messiah, our loving Lord and Savior, says it very bluntly and very flatly. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That doesn't give us a lot of options. 
that doesn't give us a lot of options to just, I'll just do my best to be good to my fellow man, and eventually I'll find my way there. Jesus himself says, I am the way. And there's no way around it. That's the message that we as Christians preach. That's the message that if you're a seeker and you're in church, and I hate that term, seeker, if you're hungry to know that there's more out there for you, if you're hungry to know that there is something that is unchanging, that will accept me for who I am, and that can bring life into a dark world, if you're hungry for that kind of thing, and you hear a message like that, it can be offensive. It can be really offensive. There aren't a hundred ways. There's one way. And his name is Jesus. But if we truly love one another, as we're commanded again to do, multiple times we're commanded to love one another, we will not shy away from that. John 13, 34 Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So as I have loved you, sacrificially giving himself for you, that we love one another that way, in a sacrificial way. That's true love for one another. And if we have that kind of love, like I don't care what happens to me, but I love you enough to share the truth with you. That's the kind of sacrificial love that we're called to. And if that's where we are, we're not going to shy away from any consequences or potential consequences for sharing the gospel of Christ in public. John 15, 18 and 19, Jesus says this again. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but because I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. Because you are special and set apart as holy as his, you have chosen to line yourself under that banner of Jesus Christ. That sets you apart from the rest of the world. And as a result of that, you're marching under a different banner. And that's going to set you up for attack. Jesus says this. And until he returns, it's not going to get better. It will get worse before it gets better. We're promised that over and over again. Gospel's still sounding attractive. It's going to get worse. George Orwell, George Orwell was a dystopian writer, sometimes Christian, sometimes not, but it's wisdom in what he said. He said this, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. Wisdom, no matter what the source is, we see that happening all the time. But again, we are told in Scripture repeatedly, again and again and again, do not shy away. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4.16, he's visiting the church in Galatia um, that should have been very friendly to him, but he's offering a word of correction, and they're not loving it. So he says, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? We see that happen all the time. And if it happened to Paul, it'll happen to us, without a doubt. Jesus said this. This is in Luke chapter 6, verses 22-23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and insult you, and score your name, scorn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That sounds super exciting. You're blessed. 
rejoice on that day and jump for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers used to treat the prophets the same way. Saying, you're, you're not the first one who's been ostracized and made fun of, hated, excluded, insulted, scorned on account of sharing the gospel of Christ. It's been that way. And again, in Matthew, Jesus says again, Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Okay, now that's not a salvation issue. It doesn't mean you have to go out in the street and proclaim the name of Jesus out loud in order to be saved. To do that, you merely give your heart to Jesus. You proclaim with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, and then you will be saved. That's it for salvation. But then is a higher responsibility. Then we have to go share that gospel, that life-giving message with others. So how do we do that? If the gospel is so offensive and so difficult for some people to hear, how do we proclaim it with love? How do we proclaim the whole gospel and have it be effective? How do we do that? Do we preach a watered-down version of the gospel? Do we preach a gospel light and leave out all the, let's leave out the judgment parts, leave out the, if you don't know Christ, there is a future in store for you and it's not awesome. Do we leave that power out? I don't believe that we do. First of all, we need to know this. That just because the gospel of Christ is offensive to many doesn't mean we as deliverers of it have to be. Get that. The gospel of Christ can be very narrow and very focused, and because of that, it can be very offensive. That doesn't mean that we as Christians have to be offensive in the world. We should just be the opposite. And there's a way that we can do that. I'm going to share that with you. That's the focus of this whole message. We have to give people no reason to doubt our sincerity and to doubt the power of Christ in us. That's where it starts, because if they don't believe you're sincere, if they can't witness with their eyes the power of Christ in your life, why would it be attractive? Book of Titus, here, a trivia question for my Bible scholars. The book of Titus, Old Testament or New Testament? Very good. You guys are almost as smart as the first service. You're smarter, but don't tell them. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says this, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The opponent right there is Satan. It's not the other side of the table in a debate club. It is Satan. And if we give Satan a foothold to use against us, he will use it. He'll either use it to disqualify you from sharing the gospel at all or harden somebody's heart towards the deliverer. You're trying to share the gospel of Christ with somebody and yet they see the way you talk about others. You're trying to share the gospel of Christ and yet they see that you cut in line at the grocery store and you're trying to sneak some extra vegetables onto the conveyor. They need to see that you're living your life this way. Are we going to be perfect? No. 
but this is something that we should be striving for to not give the enemy a weapon. And he will use all those things as a weapon. And if he can't get you to the other person to disqualify you because I've seen how you act, you'll disqualify yourself because you know who you are and you're not going to feel equipped or qualified to share that gospel. You're going to say, I am too messed up to go share the gospel with somebody. And the enemy will pounce on that and he'll use that to get you aside. He doesn't want to give up any territory and every soul won for the Lord is territory that he has lost. And he'll do whatever he can to keep you from being a part of that happening. So, uh, where we are. It's not a salvation issue. It's a spiritual warfare issue. Satan's always going to try and hinder you from sharing that gospel. Don't give him ammunition. Here's a question I want you to think about. Those of you who know the Lord and maybe haven't known him since you were a child, like I've known the Lord since I don't even remember when, those of you who have a specific time where you can remember, I remember who shared the gospel of Christ with me, and I remember the difference that that made in my heart. That's on the next page. Hold that aside. You're going to think about somebody different right now. Think about someone who's passed away, somebody that you know. This isn't pleasant. Think about somebody that you know who has passed away from sickness or a disease. Now think about what if you had the cure that would have cured that disease, that would have saved their life, but because they mistrusted your motives or because you didn't have a relationship with them, they rejected it? How would that make you feel? If you had the thing that could save that person that you care about and they rejected it because of who you are, that would hurt. That would hurt me. And that's how I think, I think we as Christians should feel that way. If our lack of sincerity or our not walking in a reflection of Christ, the way we live our lifestyle, our condemning attitude, whatever it is, if that causes someone's heart to be hardened to receiving the gospel message of Christ, it should hurt in that way. Because the stakes are so much higher than that. Once they believe that you really care, then you can speak the truth, but speak it in love. And we don't have to preach a gospel light. We can preach the entire gospel of Christ, complete with judgment and consequences. But we have to have a relationship, and they have to know that you care. Or worse yet, maybe instead of gospel light, we preach a gospel that's influenced by popular culture. Here's how it, says, it talks about that in Scripture. Again, the Apostle Paul, again, in Ephesians 4, 14 and 15, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all, spe- all aspects into him who is the head, that is, Christ. So it still didn't tell you how to speak the truth in love, did it? Did you catch maybe the most important, what I think is the most important part of that verse is the phrase, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there. So to put that in context, let's back up a little bit. Still Ephesians chapter 4, but verses 1 through 3 say, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul, he's writing from prison. 
He writes this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do you do that? How do you walk in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love when you're sharing a message that can be very offensive? You can do that because as a believer in Christ, you have one tool, one tool that will help you with all of those things, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone can help you deliver a message that would otherwise be offensive in a way that is loving and brings unity and life. We will never be able to figure it out on our own, but that's a gift from God. Paul again talks about Ephesians 4, 7, just a couple verses down. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's talking about the gift that you receive. Not only the gift of Christ and him resurrected, but through then the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit deposited in you at the time that you accept Christ. You then have the gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit are what is going to help you do this in a way that you could never do it on your own. It's going to help you walk in that. Now, there'll be some people specifically called for a specific purpose. Again, right after this, he says, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he gave some as apostles. This is the gifts he's giving to people who get the Holy Spirit, who receive Christ. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, as teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now that is some get those specific gifts, but all are called to share the gospel of Christ. All, everyone, whether that's your specific gift or not. Now I may have stand up here and I'm preaching and I'm hoping to reach a wider audience with the message of Christ, but wherever you are, we're still supposed to share that gospel message. Now, those gifts, those are some of the gifts given through what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, what happened with the, with the disciples in the upper room. And it happens again every single time a believer gives their heart to Christ. Every time a child of God says yes to Jesus, they receive that baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will guide you, will give you the words to speak, and the things to say and, and the people to say them to in order to let the light of Christ shine through you. We can't do it on our own. We can never do it on our own. Matthew 10, 16 to 20, Christ says this, Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep. This is his commission. How excited would you be to hear this? I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wary so be as wary as serpents and as innocent of doves. How do you do that on your own? Wary as a serpent, but yet innocent as a dove. But be on guard against people, for they will hand you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll even be brought before governors and kings on my account as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In other words, they're going to make an example of you to discourage anyone else from sharing this gospel. Verse 19, but when they hand you over, don't worry about what you're going to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. 
For it is not you who are speaking, but it is the spirit of your father who is speaking in you. You ever worry about what you're going to say when you're sharing the gospel with somebody? I do. Every single time. Every time I have an opportunity. (coughs) Excuse me. Not so much up here corporately, but one-on-one. I'm always worried about, am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to have the words to say? But we are promised that the Spirit will come on you and give you exactly what to say and how to say it in that moment. So we don't need to be afraid of that because it's not you speaking. It's the Spirit of your Father who is speaking in you. And know this, church. It's not about how many people you share the gospel of Christ with. It's not a matter of numbers. The one that matters is the one in front of you. The one that matters is the one you're speaking to that day. I have a story for you, a very short story. <coughs> I know I'm over on time already. But here's a story. It's by an author named Lauren Isley, and it's, it's a common story. Many of you have heard it, but bear with me and just think about this. One day a man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking something up and gently throwing it into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, what are you doing? The youth replied, throwing starfish back into the ocean. The surf is up and the tide's going out. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. Son, the man said, don't you realize there are miles and miles of beach and hundreds and hundreds of starfish? You can't possibly make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it back into the surf. Then, smiling at the man, he said, it made a difference for that one. Now is what I set up a few minutes ago. Think of the person that first shared the gospel with you. If you're one of those people who can pinpoint the person or the time or the place where somebody first shared the gospel with you, did that make a difference in your life? How did that change your life? That someone somewhere was bold enough and obedient enough to the word of the Lord to share the gospel of Christ with you. Did that make a difference in your life? Are you thankful that they did that? I am. I can think of the time and the place and the day and the person, and I pray for that person all the time because of the difference that made in my life. When we pray here in just a moment, if you have that that person, pray for them. Pray for them and thank God for them, for their obedience. Because Scripture tells us there's great rejoicing in heaven on the day that you turn to Christ. The day that the one turns to Christ, there's great rejoicing. Let me read you one last story before I conclude here really quick. Bear with me. I know I'm over, but we'll get there. Luke 15, verses 1 through 7 Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religion uh, complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that has lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, He will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there's more more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and turns to God 
than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. See, the gospel message of Jesus is often seen as offensive, first of all, and then those who deliver it, seen as foolish. Those who proclaim the gospel message of a risen Christ are seen as foolish often. And that's nothing new either. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to, those of us, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Through the power and light of a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, I, for one, will gladly be thought of as a fool and proclaim the resurrection of Christ to everyone. That's where I am. Would you join me in that? So as we pray, maybe, maybe you're out there online and you say, okay, I get what you're saying, but I don't know the Lord. What do I have to do? Maybe you're in here saying, I thought I knew, but I don't really have a relationship with the Lord. What, what do I do? Scripture tells us it's the, the process is very easy. It doesn't cost anything. There's no paperwork to fill out. You have to decide in your heart that I need Jesus. I need Jesus, and I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life because this world is too much for me to navigate. I don't want to wonder where I'm going to end up. I don't want to wonder where I'm going to be on that day. I don't, wonder, I don't want to wonder how I'm going to be judged on that day. I want the certainty of having Christ in my life. And so scripture says, believe in your heart and profess with your mouth. You just have to say, Jesus is Lord. I accept you, Jesus. And however you want to say it, it's not a formula. But if you're out there now and you say, I need this power in my life, I want to invite you to make that decision right now. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy on a world that doesn't deserve it. On a world that deserves all the judgment that, that an almighty God could dish out. You have chosen instead to love us. You have chosen instead to give your one and only son into the world to give him up for crucifixion on the cross so that we may have life. Through his blood, through his sacrifice, we can be reconciled to you. You love us enough that you did that for us. So Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, then I pray for those who don't know you, but they know they need to know you. Lord, just like happened to me all those years ago, my prayer was, God, if you're real, make yourself known to me. If you are real, make yourself known to me today. And if you do, I will say yes to you right here today. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone out there saying that very same prayer or anything like it, that you make yourself real to them so that we can pull the entire body of Christ into the light, and then we can be the light to the world. Show us those situations. Bring us into those places where we have the opportunity to be bold and stand up and share the gospel of Jesus. Whether we know all the words or we know all the scriptures, we can share who you are to us and what you've done in our hearts. Give us the word to speak when the time comes and put us in those places where we have the chance to be bold. 
and proclaim who you are and your mercy and your love. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, next week we're going to talk about the title of the message is The Light Extinguished by Darkness, or so it would seem. We're going to take communion together now. If you're out there at home, grab your communion supplies. If you're in here, uh, we have them, the little single-serve cups on the table in the back. Now's your time to grab one of those. Take communion with us. If you know Jesus Christ, you are invited to celebrate communion with us. What it is isn't important. What it signifies is. It signifies aligning yourself with who Jesus Christ is and accepting the sacrifice that he made for you. Now, as we do this, as we give you a minute to prepare your supplies, we have this board, Jesus is. I want to invite any of you, let's fill up all those blank places. Who is Jesus to you? Go just right on there. Whatever's on your heart, Jesus is. This is who Jesus is to me. Let's do that. It's so encouraging to be able to read that together and see who Jesus is in people's lives. We have a prayer team in the back. Look for somebody with a prayer lanyard if you need prayer. If you're out there online, you can just respond in the chat boards, and we will pray for you. We'll respond there. Um, On your way out, if you want to grab one of those books, one of those Case for Easter books, if you want a little bit more information on that. But let's take communion together. So in the beginning, in the beginning, God very simply said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that it was good. But the problem is, light has always been at odds with darkness, has always been opposite. And it seems like darkness has at times overcome the light. We know this hasn't happened, but we have become used to accommodating the darkness. We've become used to seeing in the dark. And we should crave the light. We should want to walk in the light. And the light is Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave himself on the cross, body broken. This represents the broken body of Christ. Given, sacrificed on that cross to pay the price for the sins of all of us. Those who accept him and those who won't. He paid the price for all. And if you take that, you're agreeing with that sacrifice. The blood of Christ, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The blood of Christ by which we are cleansed from our sins. The sins that we've committed in the past, the sins that we committed this morning, the sins that we committed five minutes ago. Whenever it is, it doesn't matter because each time you accept the blood of Christ, it atones for your sins and it pays the price and it reconciles you with Father God. Take the blood. Father God, we thank you for who you are and we praise you for your son Jesus this day and every day. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you guys.